Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 59. This episode is brought to you by Princeless from Action Lab Entertainment. Action Lab Entertainment is proud to present Princeless, which tells the story of Adrian, one princess who's tired of waiting to be rescued. Join Adrian and her guardian dragon, Sparky, in an action adventure designed specifically for those who are tired of waiting to be rescued and who are ready to save themselves. Written by Jeremy Whitley, with stunning art by M. Goodwin, and featuring a backup story by Jeremy and D.E. Belton, Princeless is a swashbuckling miniseries that will appeal to children of all ages. Princeless, who needs Prince Charming? Save yourself. Princeless is a comic book miniseries available for pre-order this month at dcbservice.com, tfall.com, or your local retailers, or various online retailers with an order code of August 110748. Additional information and release schedule can be found at actionlabcomics.com. Once again, that's actionlabcomics.com. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor. This week's episode, special guest Jim Dietz from the Legion of Dudes podcast and myself, we discuss some of our favorite B-movies of all time. This episode is a precursor to the upcoming Matinee Idols Month, which takes place during the month of August. For the next four weeks, from August 10th through August 31st, you will hear some of the Matinee Idols podcast veterans along with myself and a slew of special guests as we talk about all things movie-related. And you'll be able to enjoy those episodes starting on August 10th for four consecutive weeks. So, but until then, this is a little bit of a warm up to get you ready for that. And this is episode is a lot of fun, especially for the younger generation that has no idea about the, about some of these old school B movies. So I really hope you dig it and I really hope you check it out. But before we get started with that, there are a few things that I want to talk to you about. Right now, for my comic book fans that listen to the show, I'm about to spoil uh, Marvel Comics Ultimate Fallout issue four because it's about to get into what I want to talk about uh, for like the next couple of minutes or so. This article comes from USA Today. This is where I'm reading the source from right now. Um, it says, we have an African-American president, so why not an African-American Spider-Man 2? Revealed in Marvel Comics Ultimate Fallout issue four out Wednesday. The new Spider-Man in the Ultimate Universe is a half-black, half-Hispanic team named Miles Morales. He takes over the gig held by Peter Parker, who was killed in Ultimate Spider-Man, issue 160, in June. In his first appearance, he simply breaks up a fight. But readers will learn the true origin of Morales and how he became the new Spider-Man when Ultimate Spider-Man relaunches in September with a new number one issue. The theme is the same. With great power comes great responsibility, says writer Brian Michael Bendis. He's going to learn that. Then he has to figure out what that means. Now, the Internet has been all ablaze since the announcement of this um, you know, new, new Ultimate Spider-Man, uh, Miles Morales. And the thing about it is, is that... There's been, you know, my friends, a lot of my friends dig it. They think it's cool. I mean, I think it's great. I think it's great, especially for the ultimate line. I think it's just great for comics in general, just to see, some, you know, see something different. Now, granted, I know some people say, well, why can't they just create a new 
just a new black superhero instead of making, you know, replacing Peter Parker with a, a cat like Miles Morales. Uh, you know what? It's the ultimate universe. And in comics, the one thing that has the one thing I think that has always hurt comics is the lack of change. And when there actually is change, people go back and revert things to the way they used to be. You know, the one constant in any form of, you know, any form of media, any form of life, anything is, you know, change. There's always that progression. And I think this is a great thing for comics. And I give props to Brian Michael Bendis for, for handling this. I, it's just, just a, it's a nice move on Marvel's part, especially um, when you look at the fact, like with Marvel, when you think of black characters, you normally think of Luke Cage, um, you normally think of Blade or you think of Black Panther. Now, granted, it's been harder for Blade and Black Panther to have consistent series um, within the Marvel Universe. They come and go, they come and go, come and go, come and go. But with this, this is going to be Spider-Man that hopefully will be around for a long time in the Ultimate Universe. Now, not everyone is pleased with the fact that, um, that we have a half Hispanic, half black Ultimate Spider-Man. And... This has also led to like a lot of ignorance on the internet and just, it really irritates me. And let me explain. A gentleman by the name of Larry Doherty, who is the owner manager of Larry's Comics in New England, is like one of the, you know, heavy, heavy hitter retailers in comics as far as in the, you know, New England area, decided that he was going to uh, say some, you know, try to make some jokes about there being an African-American Spider-Man. And so on his Twitter feed, which is which uh, he has now erased these statements, but some people captured them and posted them on you know various sites. Uh, Larry decides to say, you know, question, hey, Spidey, why are you web slinging so fast? And the answer from Spidey is KFC closing in a few minutes, then followed by another tweet that says, you know, that says, Ben, that you? And then it says, how you know? And the answer is, them lips, nigga, no mask, go and hide them. You know, I'm tell you something. I'm in a state right now where because of what I do, you know, I, I run Action Lab Entertainment. I'm, you know, I'm responsible for trying to get comics through Diamond, getting them into comic book stores. When I hear statements like that, and then on top of the fact that you had a Republican congressman out of Colorado, Doug Lamborn, labeled the president as a tar baby. I think it's time that we just stop the whole living in a post-racial age commentary because this is not a post-racial age please believe we're far from it in all forms of media ignorance is strong if not stronger than ever uh, whether it be media business life in general now progress in itself has been made but it's when people show the true colors that you actually see how far or how little we've actually come now as far as the remarks that larry of larry's comics made i feel they're ignorant petulant stupid just it's everything I can't stand about the business that I'm in right now because the problem is is that that comments like Larry's have been said in other stores and I'm also sure that in many parts of the comic book industry there are people like him who say things like that and feel that way and he may feel that it's all a joke and he said you know I'm just joking how come black people can say stuff like this and I can't say stuff like this you know the thing is is that using using the word nigga using the n-word any of that stuff any like you know black jokes whatever stuff like that is inclusive it's inclusive to the african-american race plus you must understand that not all african-americans not all black people like to use that word and also use that connotation it's you know talk about you know big lips and stuff you know we ain't made a joke about big lips since jimmy walker in 1980 
My problem is, is that I'm sick. I'm just sick of all this ignorance. Whether it be fanboys, whether it be the general public, and a lot of the general public that don't even read comic books are like commenting on it and like, you know, just like if you go to the USA Today article and start reading the comments, if they haven't started deleting comments, some of the ignorant shit you will read on there will just be enough just to make you turn off computers in general for like a week. And a lot of these people that are commenting on these things don't even read comic books in the first place. So they don't understand that there is still a regular Marvel Universe Spider-Man, which is Peter Parker, and the ultimate line, which is Miles Morales. And it's good that the ultimate line actually does different stuff instead of rehashing on old school Marvel stories with a new twist. That's, that's old. That's tired. Go do new stuff. Miles Morales is good for comic books. If I was a kid and I saw somebody that kind of looked like me as Spider-Man, I would get so excited. I would ask my mom to take me to a comic book store, take me somewhere where I can find it. Because I know where I live. Where I live, I don't see black kids going into comic book stores. I don't see a lot of people of color going to comic book stores. So this is a good look for Marvel. It's a good look for Disney. But but still those attitudes of people like Larry Doherty from Larry's Comics and like, you know, these kind you know, these these like lewd and just ludicrous and ignorant and just stupid and inane commentary from people that commented on this USA Today article and people that like defend folks that run comic book stores like Larry's Comics and the ignorance that is also within the industry because we're also dealing with the industry that has low threshold of employment for minorities like African Americans and women in general. You know, it makes me wonder why any minority will want to be in the comics game the way these folks act. And I think about that sometimes. I really do. I really, truly do. And I wonder if by what I do, can I actually make a difference and can I actually change things? Because I'm real irritated right now. But, you know, through all that, I can't let... These ignorant folks who are essentially cowards because they use the Internet and like, you know, all these other forms of media. In a sense, it's kind of like new age liquid courage. I can't let their form of hatred and ignorance and all this other stuff deter me from what I got to do. And to those, you know, to like any, 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 you know, any brother or sister, any, any woman. Any minority in general that's trying to get into this comics game, whether you're trying to do your own thing, whether you're trying to break into the big two, other publishers, whatever. Don't let bullshit like this and statements like those deter you from what you need to do. And that's just not for comics. That's for anything in life. Don't let it deter you. Because I'm not going to let it deter me. But I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm sick of it. Why in the fuck would you even say something as ignorant as that? I mean, and this is the biggest problem. with This is another issue that I've always had with comics. It's one of the biggest problems that I've had with comics. It's comic books, first and foremost, a form of literature. It is fiction. Spider-Man is a fictional character that swings around in PJs, okay? He's not real, which means I can do... Anyone can do whatever they want to do with Spider-Man as long as Spider-Man editorial, whether it be Ultimate or whether it be regular Marvel 616, you know, as long as editorial says it's cool, you could do whatever you want. He's not real. Okay? He's not. It's like Superman. Superman's not real. These are just characters. They're intellectual properties you know, owned by big corporations, which means they can change anytime they want. You could go back in the 80s. And the thing is, like I said, this stuff has been you know, prominent forever. You can go back in the 80s when Rhodey became Iron Man. 
you know, supposedly Marvel got like bomb threats when James when James Rhodes was Iron Man in the books for like a long time. And this ignorance still continues to this day. It's 2011. And the thing is, is that what hurts comic books the most comic book guy stereotype destroys the reputation of actual good readers that really love the form of comics, love the form of art, just love the literature itself. People like Larry Doherty and like, you know, other ignorant folks that have that have that stereotype just destroy the reputation of comic books in general. This is a big problem as to why comic books are always like the redheaded stepchild of media and always in the back burner. And, you know, the only time they really get news is that, like, say, for instance, Marvel puts out a big press press release the day of or a day before a comic comes out, like with Ultimate Spider-Man, Death of Captain America. That's the only time it really gets played. San Diego Comic-Con, where they really don't talk about the comics, they talk about the pop culture media event itself. But if we had less ignorance in this industry, if we had less ignorance in the selling of comics, the comics game would be in a much better spot. I mean, that's just how I feel about it. But, you know, I got to maintain a form of, you know, professionalism. You know, I first thing I wanted to do was I just wanted to go to Twitter and say, you know what, Larry, you can go eat a dick. But I can't do that because I help run a business. So the only thing I can do is just, you know, use Twitter as a tool. And some of these things I said to you today, I said on on Twitter only thing I can do is just tell people, you know, no matter what you do in life, no matter where you go, no matter anything, no matter what, there will always be ignorance. And it's just something that we're always going to have to deal with. You can't turn off stupid. It's never going to go away. But like I said before, I'm not letting ignorant motherfuckers like that deter me from what I want to do. And you shouldn't either. So you know what? Props to Brian Michael Bendis. Sarah Piccoletti is going to be doing the artwork on Ultimate Spidey, if I remember right. It looks, you know, and from what I've seen, it's going to look great. So I think it's pretty fucking cool that we have a half, a half Hispanic, half African-American Spider-Man written by a Jewish man with art by a female. That is fucking awesome. And I hope it sells out the wazoo because comics needs that right now. We need more progression. And that's all I'm going to say about that. ballots are in and i've been notified by the parsec awards committee that the pkd black box is not an awards finalist this year for the parsec awards we were nominated in two categories but we were you know nominated in you know semi-finalist form but we were not a finalist that would make four nominations in two years four semi-final nominations in two years that is and and yeah yeah yeah, you know it kind of sucks that we're not a finalist again you know but that's okay at least we got nominated and at least somebody thinks highly of the PKD black box, but I don't do this for awards. I don't do it for fame. I don't do it for cash. Be cool if I got paid, <laughs> but I do it because it's fun. I do it because I, you know, I like it. I like talking to people and I love pop culture and I love my listeners and I love my fans. And that's why I do this. That means next year the PKD Black Box gets nominated again as a Parsec Parsec Award semifinalist. And I'm like the new black male Susan Lucci. It just keeps getting nominated every year, but I never gets invited to the big dance. That's all right. I still love doing this anyway. 
I just want to once again say thank you to everybody that listens to this podcast. It means everything to me. It means everything to Donnie of the Tales from the Act podcast. It means everything to John of the Carol Chronicles podcast. And once again, it means everything to me. So thank you so much. And I hope you keep listening. But enough of my talking. Let's go ahead and get to the feature presentation. He is a chef extraordinaire. He is the owner of the Gypsy Cafe, a wonderful place to eat if you are in the Pittsburgh area. Go down there and get you some fine cuisine. He is also one of the co-hosts of the Legion of Dudes podcast. You've heard him on the first Kung Fu Explosion episode of the PKD Black Box. I want to say episode number five. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Jim Dietz. Jim, how you doing, sir? Wow, what an intro. I hope I can live up to that, Sean. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's been too long, my friends, since the Kung Fu episode, so I'm glad to be back here in the black box, especially if the plane goes down. I know I'm in the safest place in the plane. There you go. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a great honor and privilege to be here with someone as erudite and as knowledgeable and personable as yourself. Oh Well, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. And I'm glad that you are back. We missed you uh, on uh, part two of the uh, Kung Fu Explosion, sir. I was too busy uh, climbing the steps with buckets of water for Pi May. So. <laughs> it's all right. The reason we are here on the, on this Skype chat uh, today is because we want to talk to you, the listeners, about some of our favorite B movies of all time. I know you know this current generation, you know, of, of kids that watch the movies now. They probably aren't really too sure of what a B movie is. Whereas, you know, myself and you, Jim, we come from a generation that wasn't buried in direct-to-video movies or direct-to-HBO or direct-to-DVD. We weren't part of the direct generation. We, if we wanted to go see a movie, we had to go to a movie theater. Or if a movie didn't make it to the movie theater or just was in a limited market, a year later it might show up on HBO. And we may not not know what what it actually was, whether it be HBO, Showtime, or Cinemax, because there weren't a gajillion pay movie channels in the 70s and 80s. I think another point that bears mentioning is that we didn't, a lot of times, we didn't know what we were getting into when we went to the movie because we didn't have the internet to, you know, uh, give us previews and uh, interviews with the stars and everything ahead of time. You know, sometimes the science fiction movie roll into town to the local theater, you'd have no idea what it was. Exactly. Uh, not, not only that, but you may not have even known it. it was coming unless you looked in the newspaper. Exactly. I know I'm, I'm sounding like Grandpa Walton here, but back before the internet, <laughs> I mean, the only time, the only way we ever got an advance notice of like any, you know, good, decent, you know, sci-fi or or genre movies or whatever was in, you know, a magazine like Starlog or, um, you know, or Omni. You know, magazines are long gone now. You know, supplanted by the internet, and uh, you know, we all a lot of times, you know, when being a kid growing up in the '80s, when you go down to the theater, the only indication you would have of what the movie was going to be at all was the poster. Yep. You know, and and the name, you know, and if the poster looked cool, you'd be like, hey, I'm in. Exactly. That's how I got to see so many bad movies. (laughs) (laughs) Same here. In all honesty, I mean, you would like pop open a newspaper, go straight to like the movie times. And if a company that had a B movie come out, they sometimes would spend a little bit of money on advertising to get that copy of the poster in the newspaper with all the times that the movie would air, you know, that the movie would show during that said week or weekend. The poster was the selling point. Because if your poster was weak, there was a pretty good chance that you weren't going to go see that movie. Art had a really big role. Poster design had a really big role in 
the, you know, I guess the um, influence of going to see a B movie. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the smaller distributors like AIP or Golden Sun or, you know, any of these, uh, that, that was their real, uh, you know, gateway of distribution where there was their ad and their, uh, you know, their advertising campaign. That was the only really clue what you would, you know, clue to what was going on in the movie you would have. Oh, yeah, exactly. And sometimes, I mean, if you were lucky every now and then, some of these B movies would actually have trailers because their distributor would have like, you know, enough money at the last minute to whip together the throw a trailer and attach it to a similar type film like whether it be uh like say for instance let's say a movie like battle beyond the stars might be tied up with another science fiction movie you're going to see at the movie theater whether that be a list or z list they would you know make sure they got that trailer in there so you could check it out posters played a big big role in the B-movie era um, of the, you know, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, it played a very big role, even to a point the early 90s, before the internet, you know, was just like a, a wee baby. Um, you know, it still played a role. Like a movie, a B-movie like Carnosaur is a perfect perfect example. Carnosaur drops around the same time Jurassic Park does. And that's one of those Roger Corman movies that kind of bites off of, you know, what's current or what's hip and around that time Jurassic Park was hip Carnosaur was done inexpensively and at the same time it was released for a couple of weeks I know because in, in my local my, my hometown of Middletown we went to go see Jurassic Park and then like I guess no more than a week later if I remember right I go to the movies again. I'm like, what the hell is Carnosaur? And it's like literally right across the screen, right across from Jurassic Park. And a lot of people who weren't paying attention went to go see Carnosaur because they saw a poster with a dinosaur on the front of it. And they meant to go see Jurassic Park. And that's playing right into Corman's uh, uh, marketing strategy right there. I mean, if you look at, like you mentioned, Battle Beyond the Stars, you know, Star Wars was popular. What happens? We get a European ripoff called Star Crash, yes. which I'm sure we'll be talking about. We get a Japanese ripoff called Message from Space. Yes. And then we get a low-budget Roger Corman ripoff called Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> um, Conan comes out. It's incredibly popular. We get Ator, the Avenger, and Barbarian Queen, and... Uh, I'm 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 blanking on the last. Oh, the um the sword and the sorcerer. Yes, and the beastmaster. Yes. And the Beastmaster, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we find we, we we see again and again with the B movies, uh, you know, we see a, a blueprint for success, a real you know trend maker, and then a lot of also rans and wannabes. Yes, and, and we also saw a bunch of um, you know actors, actresses, producers, and directors. You know, important. I, I shouldn't say important, but people that are popular now or people that we know of. If you mention so and so actor, they're in that top echelon. A lot of these people. You know, got their career, started their careers in B movies. Well, Roger Corman is, I mean, alone. I mean, he's considered the king of the B movies. Uh, let me throw a little background in. People who don't know Roger Corman is he started American International Pictures in the the late fifties, early sixties. Did a lot of really cheapy movies. Um, sometimes doing two or three movies a week. Uh, sometimes, you know, in the same set, in the same area, sometimes. Uh, I know Teenage Caveman and King Dinosaur were filmed in the exact same location. Wow. But a lot of uh, really, like, big-name directors and actors got their start with Corman. Jack Nicholson's first uh, couple movies were, were with Roger Corman. Yep. Dennis Hopper's first few movies were with Roger Corman. Directors like Joe Dante and Martin Scorsese and Jonathan Demme all cut their teeth making low-budget Roger Corman movies. Mm -hmm. And if it weren't for these B-movies and this independent uh, style and spirit, I don't think we would have had the flood of independent movies we had in the 70s all the way till now. We wouldn't have... You know, I mean, Corman was really working outside the studio system, and he was one of the few who did and was able to make a success of it. Yeah, he and he still says to this day, 
every film he's produced, he's made a profit. I, I believe him, you know? Yeah. Basically, my, my love of bad movies goes back to uh, when I uh, grew up in... I lived in Cleveland until I was about 11 years old, and they had a... Um, the local weatherman would uh, dress up in a Superman outfit and make his face up to look like Alfred E. Newman and went by the name of Superhost. And every Saturday afternoon, there would be um, like a Star Blazers cartoon and a Hercules cartoon, the 60s version. And then they would usually show a Godzilla movie and a Hammer Horror movie, or uh, alternately from a Hammer Horror movie, one of those really um, bad atomic giant monster movies from the 50s, like Them, or The Amazing Colossal Beast, or... The beginning Earth of the Vers- end? Exactly, Earth <laughs> versus the Spider, you know. Where they just discovered the process shot, pretty much. <laughs> so, you know, oh, let's make it big. Great, we have a monster. You know, everybody was afraid of atomic energy at that point. But I, I would watch these movies, and even as a kid would be like, you know, to be watching the you know Godzilla versus Megalon or something, I'd be like, "That's a guy in a rubber suit." You know, even at eight years old, I wasn't I wasn't buying it. You know, and that love of bad movies has just uh, um, you know followed me ever since. There was also a guy uh, a guy named Big Chuck and Houlihan in Cleveland, who also um, on Saturday nights would show um, you know B horror movies like The Green Slime or Carnival of Souls, you know, I could rattle off another, you know, two dozen or three dozen they would play. And that's really where my love of, of B-movies and, 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 you know, the, the not the big studio production movies came from. And then later when I learned more about film, that, that kind of, indep- the kind of independent uh, B-movie spirit just kind of transferred over into indie films that I love, you know. I think the OG, though, if you really have to go back to, to the B-movies, would be Ed Wood and uh, his, his classic Plan 9 from Outer Space, which yeah. is generally considered you know one of the worst movies ever made and if you've ever seen it you have to agree i mean it, it looks like the whole production was shot for about a buck two fifty <laughs> bella lugosi actually died like three days into production and then was replaced by a six foot five chiropractor who looked nothing like lugosi at all but walked around with a cape over his face the ufos were so chintzy and cheap that you could literally see frisbee pie company printed on the UFO pie plate that they used. The dialogue is incredibly cheesy. They have a, a like a MacGuffin or a science fiction-y thing called Solomite, and it's pronounced like five different ways in the movie. Yeah. One person calls it Solomite, the other one calls it Solomonite, and then Sol- <laughs> Solarite, and you know, the, none of them can get it right. The, the spaceship is basically you know, a cardboard backdrop with a sliding door. Um, a, a cockpit of, a, of, of an aircraft is, is a shower curtain and a wall and two guys sitting in folding chairs you know i mean uh, stock footage galore they stole uh, an old octopus from the underwater or undersea kingdom cereal from the republic studios and they used that in the movie but without animating it at all pretty much somebody got killed by the octopus they were laying on top of this big fake octopus rolling around screaming <laughs> You know, um, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful bad movie. And it really, like I said, it's considered the OG of bad movies just because, I mean, when the uh, the very first book I ever read about bad movies, uh, the Golden Turkey Awards by Michael Medved, mm-hmm. um, they considered Plan 9 from Outer Space to be the worst movie ever made. 
unfortunately, I can say I've seen worse movies than Plan 9 from Outer Space. And we're, we'll go into that as we go on, I guess. <laughs> I actually saw Plan 9 from Outer Space for the first time late last year. And that was during a uh, Rift Tracks live screening. I saw the same thing at a local theater. It was a Fathom event. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was the first time ever I'd ever seen this movie. I fully agree 100% how awful this movie is. And if it wasn't for the fact that uh, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett um, you know, were there to crack jokes the whole time, their, you know, their jokes really got me through that movie. Otherwise, I don't know if I could make it through because that movie is just horrible. They have uh, my my favorite is uh, Tor Johnson, this um, giant six foot eight, four hundred pound wrestler who uh, Ed Wood used quite a bit. He's in Bride of the Monster and a couple other Ed Wood movies. He plays a police detective, but he can barely speak English. Yes. So they're asking him questions and he's answering and you have no idea what he's saying <laughs> at all. And you're just like, what? Yeah, it, sounds what like, it sounds like, you know, like say, take a mumbling Harrison Ford from Indiana Jones and like The Last Crusade and then put like 300 marbles in his mouth and then give him a loaf of bread to eat. And give him an accent. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We would be remiss in talking about bad movies without mentioning the Mystery Science Theater crew and the Rift Tracks crew and uh, all the wonderful bad movies they've turned me on to over the years. It's still uh, my favorite television show of all time, and hardly a day or two goes by where I don't watch an MST or a Rift Tracks. Oh, yeah. So, now, have you watched Cinematic Titanic? Yes, I have. Please? Yeah, I, I have the uh, first couple of those. Do you have East Meets Watts? No, I don't have that one yet. I have, uh, what is it, the, Blood, the Oozing Skull and the Wasp Woman. I have those two. If East Meets Watts is still in print this holiday season, I will have to get you a copy of it because you thought Plan 9 from Outer Space is bad? Mm, no, East Meets Watts is it's neck and neck. It's pretty okay. Good. I'm very intrigued now. What's it about? <laughs> um, it's a supposedly it's supposed to be this martial arts street revenge movie. It's just there's no story. Basically, you have this uh, gentleman that comes from comes from the east. I get you know it comes that comes from the greater east, and he's here to uh, find his uh, lost relative, his lost brother. And he know in, in this gentleman, I forget I forget the least char- lead character's name. He knows coming. the greater east. Like what? He's from Boston? <laughs> no, no, no. He's from uh, he's from uh, he's from Asia. Oh, okay. He's Asian. He's right. Asian. Yes. He, he, I was confused. Oh no, 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 no. He he wasn't. He wasn't. He didn't sign like a twelve day contract with the Boston Celtics. I mean, he was coming to find his brother because he hadn't heard from his brother in years, and he was coming to California. And in doing so, he runs into a crooked cop played by Aldo Ray, and Aldo Ray has like this uh, black dude in the back seat, and you know who gets racially profiled, and then he arrests the the, the Chinese dude for no reason. And then the Chinese dude and the black dude escape and they team up together for no apparent reason. And then there's a shootout and then no scenes are lit well. It, I, you know, it makes honestly no sense at all. And it really, it hurts my head. But if it wasn't for the cinematic Titanic crew, once again, another film, there's no way I'd, I would have watched that ever, 
ever. Yeah, I'd have to say um, I, my candidate for that kind of movie I, that I would never have been able to sit through without the MST treatment. It, and it definitely rivals Plan 9 for being one of the worst movies ever. It would have to be uh, Manos, The Hands of Fate, <laughs> which was filmed by uh, a guy, the guy who owned the Texas Fertilizer Company in the 60s. Uh, he had extra money and he had a girlfriend he wanted to impress, so he made a movie with her. The funniest thing about the movie is, even in the title, you know, Manos, Manos is Spanish for hands. So the actual name of the movie is Hands, The Hands of Fate. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just an incredibly, incredibly bad movie. And it's almost indescribable how bad it is. Oh, no, I, I, I agree because that is one of, one of the MST3Ks to this day I have yet to finish because that movie is so awful. And I love MST3K. I can't finish it. The beginning, Tom Servo says, they're showing us a snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, they wouldn't show us a snuff film. <laughs> uh, that that is just. Awful. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. The MST treatment, the Rift Tracks treatment, Cinematic Titanic, um, makes makes almost any bad movie better. Yes. Basically, you know, to break it down for the listeners, Mystery Science Theater was a show that started in the uh, in 1989 in Wisconsin, in, um, Minnesota. I'm sorry, uh, and they make fun of bad movies. Uh, the little guys in the silhouette in the right hand corner, you've probably seen them on television at one point or another. But um, now they've kind of uh, broken into two camps. There's the uh, the earlier uh, MST crew, with the, which is uh, Joel Hodgson, Trace Beaulieu, Josh Weinstein, uh, Mary Jo Peel, and Frank Conniff, and they are known collectively as Cinematic Titanic, yes. and they make film. They make fun of films, um, which they they get, get the rights to and then sell DVDs. And then on the other half, you have uh, Mike Nelson, Kevin Murphy, and Bill Corbett, who do riff tracks, which are MP3s that you can sync up to your own DVDs at home. Uh, and they've done some really high-profile movies, but some very low-profile movies as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I just wanted to sort that out for the listeners. And they also have the Riff Tracks live DVDs where they do live performances of riffing on movies as well. And, and sometimes they have live events, like you said, um, through, uh, I think it's called Fathom, yes. where they have, well, they'll show um, the, you know, a movie and the riff tracks in a movie theater, mm -hmm. which is a pretty neat experience if you get to go. Very much so. And the thing also, uh, the thing is, is that before they did combined forces to do riff tracks, before that, they had this thing with Shout Factory called Film Crew. And they did four movies. And it was basically like the MST3K, you know, riff tracks type deal where they found old movies and, you know, riffed on them. And it was kind of successful. Well, what happened was, well, rumor, I'm sorry, rumor has it, I guess like the producer. Jim Mallon. Thank you. Jim Mallon. Uh, Jim Mallon, a producer of MST3K, sued uh, Shout Factory or was going to sue Shout Factory over the premise of Film Crew because Film Crew what they did it was Mike, Bill and Kevin they worked at this uh, like warehouse and they had these jumpsuits and they would receive a call from like a boss like like a boss and you see like a picture of the boss and they had the little speaker like Charlie's Angels and you know and the boss would speak through the speaker phone tell them what movie they were going to watch Bob Honcho Thank you. <laughs> and and then um and they would they would watch the movie and you wouldn't have the silhouettes or anything, but they would just be riffing on the film. And I thought it was hilarious. And but I guess that Jim felt that it that it had too many similarities to MST three K. So there was, you know, the, the pending loss, either a pending lawsuit or whatever, or a cease and desist. So Shout Factory ended it. So, but then you had Rift Tracks, which is a completely different beast. So, you know, so I guess Jim can't touch that. Just like Cinematic Titanic, Jim can't touch that either. So. Interesting uh, side note to that Shout Factory ended up getting the rights to uh, making the Mystery Science Theater DVDs. Yes. 
they're the ones that are doing the DVD sets now that they've passed from Rhino on to Shout Factory. So, you know, for wanting to sue Shout Factory, I guess now you know, Jim Allen's made peace with them. So. Yeah, I guess so. It, it was just weird because if because the thing is, is that during that time also, they had MST3K and film crew. So... So I just really didn't understand. I really didn't understand why Malin would have beef. I guess this may be his way of saying, "Well, okay, you're really doing MST3K, and I'm not getting paid for it, and I don't, you know, because that's what it is." I'm like, "Well, it is, but it isn't. You know, it, there's there's no satellite of love. <laughs> there there are no robots, you know, or anything like that. It's it's a completely different premise." So I- even Beavis and Butthead did the same thing on their show with music videos. So I was surprised, you know, he didn't see them. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. So. But um, but, anyway, but that's a whole different kettle of fish. There you go. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I, I agree. Watch out now. Let us talk about some of our favorite B-movies. Uh, some of these you may have heard of. Some of these you may not have. And for the young kids, this will give you an opportunity to go on Netflix and see Instant Streaming. I, I tell you, some people don't know how good they have it. We had to wait. <laughs> we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to the video store. <laughs> yes, we live in an age of instant media. And if people only knew how it was 10, 15, you know, 20 years ago, I think some of these folks would lose their minds. But no, we're going to take you back in the day and we're going to continue to talk about some of our favorite B-movies. I would like to take the microphone if you don't mind, sir. One of the first B-movies I really remember watching in a movie theater, um, it was a cartoon actually, a 3D cartoon. And this was in 1985. I was uh, going on 10 years, I was 10 years old. And I'm sure I had seen some other B-movies in the movie theater beforehand, but this was one of the ones that I remember most because I remember my father taking me and driving me to an area called Tri-County, which was from where we lived about an hour away because this film was not showing locally in our town because we had no, uh, I guess, 3D capabilities or whatever, or the glasses, or whatever cinema um, just said, you know, we're not fooling with it. The film is a movie called Star, Ch- Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, and originally it was in 3D. It's now out of print on DVD because it was re-released by MGM a couple years back. And the premise of Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, I will read the synopsis from IMDb. A gentleman by the name of Anthony Perea uh, wrote this uh, synopsis. It says, set on the subterranean mine world, a, ban- a band of human workers are treated like slaves under the power of the evil overlord Zygon until one person, Orin, unearths the hilt of a magical sword that only he can master. Escaping the planet, he runs into the rogue smuggler Dag and a pair of helpful droids and the princess, who all team up to return to the mind world with a plan to defeat Zygon and free Orange and slave people. Now, if that does not sound like pieces of Star Wars, I don't know what does. <laughs> I'm just going to say that it sounded vaguely familiar. Yeah, and there is like a lot of ode to Star Wars in this film. Now, the funny thing about this movie, this movie was rated PG, if I remember right, and it was in 3D. And I'm tell you something right now, for this being a PG movie, as a kid, I knew this movie was not for kids. I'm just going to say, was the anime, was it Japanese animation or American? Or? Um, it was... Um, Do you remember? I've, I've never seen this one. If so. memory serves me right, it was a co-production. The lead studio was the Young Sung Production Company Limited, and that, if, if I remember right. The thing about the movie, it was in 3D. It did have adult themes. People did die. Um, the character of Dag, it, it's essentially Han Solo, straight up. He even has this like really cool spaceship 
and the spaceship. If you ever get a copy of this movie, if you can find it, if you um, listen to Dag's spaceship when it takes off, they're literally pulling the sound from like a Lucasfilm reel for the Millennium, Millennium Falcon. That's exactly what it is. And I'm surprised that they did not get sued. Yeah, it's really weird how some of these sci-fi B-movies kind of just blatantly stole special effects from other movies and were able to get away with it. I'm thinking, the one I'm thinking of right now is Space Mutiny, which literally took effect shots from Battlestar Galactica and cut them into their film. Yeah. The Battlestar Galactica television show from the 80s. Yep, I remember that. Yes, yes, indeed. I definitely remember that oh, to a T. Like, a lot of the funny things about the film is that the character of Orin, when he finds the hilt with the magical with the ma- with the the magical blade, basically the way it works is, is that it's like a lightsaber. Oh, he's the only one that can really turn it on and turn it off. And the villain, Zygon, you find out, is actually a robot who is the leader of like this robot empire that's trying to take over the galaxy. There are droids. Like, so there are droids. In Why the are they always trying to take over the galaxy? I, Why I, I, always? I don't, I don't know. I I really don't know. <laughs> but um, it's you know it's it's not a good movie at all. It's not. I just enjoy watching it for the simple fact that when you watch this movie, you can tell that when they started working on this movie, it was going one way, and then halfway through, they're like. Let's do something else. It truly, truly shows. And the ending is abrupt. The ending honestly makes no sense at all. It's just like the end and you're done. I just remember, I think the thing I walked away with this movie was like not only like the level of violence, but the cussing. Dag would say, damn. And like there's this female uh, robot, a fembot named Silica, who called this other other robot a son of a bitch. And Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this is rated PG? And, and now granted, the DVD release that was released by MGM... You, you, when you watch it, you can tell it was built for a 3D audience with some of the scenes where, like, you know, maybe like a, uh, like a robot is whipping a slave or something like that. And, like, you know, the robot's in front of the screen and he's, like, whipping right at you. So you can tell all the 3D shots. But this was one of the, one of the early uh, movies in cinema history, from what I remember, that actually used CGI. And the CGI had to do with the um, spaceship that uh, Dag had. Yeah, I remember in the 80s, there was a whole spate of uh, 3D films. Um, there, I mean, now we hear about this 3D craze, oh, 3D in the home, 3D in games, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, it reminds me very much, I remember there was one movie called Coming At Ya, mm-hmm. which was a B movie where literally the entire game movie was just them throwing things at the screen. It was like an Indiana Jones ripoff. But like, you know, somebody get killed with a spear and then face the camera with their spear and lean forward. <laughs> um, you know, literally like every few seconds, something would be thrown at you, you know, at the screen. I mean, the entire movie was nothing but a, like a, a demo for 3D. Right. And, and the thing is, is that there has been an ebb and flow of 3D um, industry, industry wise and acceptance wise since, you know, since, the, since its early stages, there's always been an ebb and flow. And so that's why, like, to me, 3D has honestly had never been a really big deal for me because I've seen it in the 70s, I've seen it in the 80s, I've seen it in the 90s, and now in, in, early, in the early aughts, and now in, the, in its overblown state right now. I, I'm in total agreement with you. 3D does nothing for me. Um, I, I'm thinking recently when I went to go see Thor, I had the choice of seeing it in 2D on a regular screen or IMAX in 3D. I love IMAX, but I could, you know, I could care less about the 3D. And like you said, I've been hearing the same thing since the 80s. So I'm just not impressed, you know. 
I was going to mention, uh, um, I mean, there was uh, the movie um, uh, Metal Storm, The Destruction of Jared Sin, that was in 3D. Uh, Space Hunter, I think, with Molly Ringwald and Peter Strauss was also in 3D. But there was, uh, there was quite a spate there of really cheesy, low-budget 80s movies that were in 3D. Oh, but of course. And the one last thing I want to mention about Star Chaser, the basic poster for Star Chaser, because they really didn't know how to sell it, there were two posters. And the first one... The first one, and this had to be like a pre, like a poster that came out way before the movie was even finished. And once again, this goes towards the, you know, we were really going this way when we first started, but then we just took a wrong turn and went the other way. The first poster, and it says it's build up top, a spectacular 3D adventure for the entire family. And then you have like this like image of the villain in the background. And you never really see this villain that they have in the background, but then you see the the uh, the hero Orin on like a black horse and this princess on a grayish horse. Then underneath, you know, they're like flying through the sky, and Orin's got his like laser sword held high. And then underneath, you see like this mountain, and you see uh, Dag with the two robots. And then it says a magical movie in the tradition of Snow White and Dark Crystal. Star Chaser: The Legend of Orin in 3D. <laughs> And, and I'm like, yeah, it sounds like it has a lot to do with Star with uh, Snow White and Dark Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly, nothing to do with that. And and um, but then the poster that finally started coming out everywhere. There was a poster that either had it either have up tops as the best 3D movie ever made, and it had a picture of the villain of Zygon. He had his arms folded, and it said like a thousand years of technology has created the ultimate ultimate robot now he wants to uh, like rule the universe and then the movie says star chaser the legend of orin in 3d and even that now that has somewhat of the premise and a little bit of understanding but if you look at the first poster and look at the second poster you're like okay which movie is this Well, I'm going to talk about a movie that I know is near and dear to your heart, uh, a Hal Needham film that came out in 1982 called Megaforce. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, a little bit of background here. Hal Needham uh, had a spate of very popular films in the late 70s and early 80s, starting with uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, he's very much, uh, he started out as a stuntman before he was a director, and most of his uh, directing prowess comes from being able to direct action scenes with cars very well. Um, we, he followed that up with a movie called Hooper, which was about stuntmen and basically based on his own life, another Burt Reynolds movie, and then a third Burt Reynolds film called The Cannibal Run, which I'm sure we all are familiar with. After the success of Cannibal Run, he was pretty much able to do whatever he wanted to do. So he, a lot of times when directors are given carte blanche to do whatever they, whatever they want to do, they fail miserably. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of what Megaforce is. Well, it stars Barry Bostwick with immaculately feathered hair and a headband. Mm-hmm. And this is back when Barry Bostwick could open a movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, Persis Kambata, uh, straight off um, her, her star turn at uh, on, uh, you know, not acting at all in Star Trek: The Motion Picture, yeah. and My Michael Beck, who was huge there for about a minute and then totally disappeared. And it's about basically a GI Joe style force of guys with flying motorcycles who are a, uh, a private. 
uh, international police force, I guess would be the best way to describe them, uh, with an Egyptian motif for some reason, mm-hmm. and, and and flying motorcycles. Uh, basically, it was uh, a good excuse to give uh, for you know to give Hal Needham a chance to do a lot of great motorcycle stunts and chase scenes. Yes, and, um, and battles that went absolutely nowhere. The dialogue takes itself way too seriously. Um, the actors are painfully from the 80s and it's just an incredibly i mean as as b-movies go i know you said star chaser was painful to watch this movie is is still hilarious to watch i mean it was it was pretty it was bad back in the day and now um through you know through the magic of time it has become uh hilarious and i'm i'm have is there a riff tracks version of megaforce because i'm unaware of it if there is i wish there was Uh, if there isn't there should be (laughs) exactly i don't even think golden harvest or 20th century fox will ever release this movie again you know the only way you can get it i know it's available overseas that's pretty much it i know uh the uh um the mystery science theater channel on justin.tv has shown megaforce a couple of times now that's awesome Uh, that's when i've gotten to see it um but it is it is incredibly and horrendously and beautifully bad and if you enjoy bad movies you should really check it out because it's just it's just bad in so many ways um again the dialogue is, is super serious kind of stilted the 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 special effects of the flying motorcycles are are you know your typical 80s green screen effects yes not not very good at all and you could tell it was just all a big attempt to sell a, bit, a giant toy line um that never got off the ground i don't even think toys were made from oh it. yes it they were such... yes they were oh, were they, they, they oh, were hot wheels hot wheels had megaforce vehicles the only reason why i know is because i had the dune buggy fair enough <laughs> <laughs> oh i can't lie though i wish they would have made full-size toys because as a kid i went to the movie theater to see this um you know this was one of the movies i did too i saw in the theater my mom and dad were just excited as I was to go see it. And, you know, we get there and I enjoyed it. And I just rem- I remember my dad talking under his breath was like, please remind me never to take us to see any crap like this ever again. <laughs> and he was he was not happy at all. I forgot that Barry Boswick's character was named Ace Hunter. Yes, that's a that's a <laughs> that's a perfect hero name, Ace Hunter. And and it will crack me up is now that I'm older and like you know you see some of these uh, actors, you know, get their early start. Like now, granted, Edward Edward Mulhair, who I remember as like Devin Miles and Knight Rider. When I when I saw this a few years back, I was like, oh, it's it. I was like, I forgot he was in this. And and um, Henry Silva, who I remember from like the Buck Rogers. Uh, you know, universal like two-hour pilot movie. Right, I, he was also in the original Ocean's Eleven. He was a good friend of the Sinatra uh, cadre back in the '60s. I did not know that. Wow, that is really cool. I had no idea. I just, you know, all these people, and they had serious people in this movie. I'm like Michael Beck, who was like in in the Warriors, if I'm not mistaken, right? Absolutely. Like I said, for for a minute there, Michael Beck was a pretty big star, and then he just kind of disappeared. But yeah, he was the main guy in the Warriors. Yeah, I, I think I, I really think that which Meg- is a good movie, by the way. Yeah, that is yeah that is a good movie. I, that is a good movie. I think um, Megaforce and Xanadu kind of just hurt Michael Beck's career for a while. Agreed. Okay. <laughs>
This week's episode is also brought to you by Snowed In from Action Lab Entertainment, who advises you not to open up your doors this Halloween. Action Lab Entertainment brings you the frightening and chill tale of Snowed In. A relaxing cabin vacation for four close friends takes a turn for the worse during a severe blizzard. A frantic stranger arrives to warn them that it is coming for them. It wants them dead. But what is it? And how far will these four individuals go to protect themselves? Snowed In is a self-contained 40-page one-shot written by Sean Gabbard with beautifully rendered and atmospheric artwork by Rick Lundin. Snowed In is available for pre-order this month at Discount Comic Book Service, T-Fall, various online retailers, and your local comic book store with an order code of August 110749 with an October release. Pre-order your copy today. And additional information and release schedule can be found at actionlabcomics.com. I want to talk about a Chuck Norris film. Now, as we all know, Chuck Norris has some, you know, big mainstream releases, but he also had a slew a slew of B-film releases as well. Now, this one I didn't see in the movie theater. Um, it did go to the movies. I mean, it did go to the movie theater, but I was too young um, when it came out. I ended up seeing it on HBO. The film is called Silent Rage. Have you ever seen this movie? I thought you were going to say Good Guys Wear Black, which I have seen, but no, I, I missed out on Silent Rage. I have seen The Octagon, though, which is also a really bad early Chuck movie. Um, oh, yeah. So go right ahead. Now, Silent Rage was the same year as, it came out the same year as Megaforce. The premise of this film is that Chuck Norris plays a sheriff by the name of Dan Stevens. He's like in this small Texas town to check out a, um, like a disturbance, which eventually turns into a murder. And the killer's still in the house, and the killer tries to kill Dan. But um, eventually, you know, Dan does some kung fu. He's got like the big, he's got the cowboy hat on. He's got the cowboy boots. Dan beats him up, stops him. Then what ends up happening is, is that the killer, he tries to get away. But the killer is shot and he dies, and the killer is end up taken to a medical hostitute, uh, medical not hostitute, a medical um, like a medical institute or something like that. So then what happens is, is that a doctor, a couple of doctors, one led by Ron Silver, who we all know, um, finds this process to um, bring the killer back to life, which then makes the killer indestructible. And so then after that, this uh, killer goes just on a killing spree and only Dan Stevens, played by Chuck Norris, can stop him. Well, of course. It's absolutely stupid. But as a kid, it scared the living shit out of me. (laughs) Because how do you kill something that can't be killed? That was the whole premise of the film. I just I think the thing that I remember most about this movie is that I, if I remember right, it had Kung Fu Joe from I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Nice. And Kung Fu Joe was Chuck Norris's friend. And even as a child, I knew, I knew that he was going to get killed because he was associated with Chuck Norris. And lo and behold, Kung Fu Joe did get killed. Later to be parodied in Black Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I, and like the I think the thing to this day it still creeps creeps me out most because the killer's name was uh in the film was John Kirby Chuck Norris finally beats beats this guy and I think like he gets like buried like underneath this, like this well or whatever and he gets buried in real deep Chuck Norris finally beats him he's you know this this uh, John Kirby's supposedly dead Chuck walks away you think the movie's over and like you know they pan over to like this well or like this like really covered up area and then you just see this fist like just like p- 
town through like a bunch of debris and the film stops, freak me the hell out. I mean, I was like seven years old. Freak me the fuck out. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> and, and I never watched that movie again. Silent Rage. I'll have to check that out. I, I'm familiar with most of his early stuff, but not that one. Yeah, um, I think it is available still on Amazon. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a five-buck flick. Um, you could probably get it for like $2 used. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just if, if you can watch it for free or get it cheap, I, I, I would feel much better about you enjoying the movie. Yeah, I, um, the, the, it wasn't until like Delta Force Invasion USA right around there that uh, uh, Missing in Action, that Chuck really got some decent production values, you know, mm-hmm. and did something, you know, uh, a little more uh, upscale, higher budget. Like I said, I remember Good Guys Were Black. Uh, again, looks like he shot for, for about a buck two fifty, and he plays a karate instructor who must, uh, you know, put away his ways of peace and teaching peacefully to uh, fight his uh, Vietnam buddies who have gone over, you know, a wall or whatever, and gone over the edge and worked as mercenaries, or the octagon where he is a karate teacher who is forced to put aside his peaceful ways to fight in an international kung fu competition. So, <laughs> oh, if not you, to be confused. No, 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 no. <laughs> if you ever get a chance, uh, we had talked about this on the Kung Fu Explosion Part 2, go check out uh, Slaughter in San Francisco. And uh, Chuck, this, this was made like 1974, and Chuck Norris plays like a drug lord slash pimp. Nice hilarious absolutely hilarious and like you know he, you know and this is a kung fu movie and you know he gets into a final fight with like the um with the lead actor who was actually i think either an understudy or like bruce lee's like stunt double or not stunt double but he studied under bruce lee or something to that extent i can't remember specifically but he uh chuck norris he sparred with Bruce Lee. He's in the, the end of Return of the Dragon. He oh. fights Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah. No, I got that on DVD, and I still got like... Oh, a- I'm sorry. I, thought I missed part of the cover. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no problem. No, um, the person that he fought, uh, Don Wong, the, that, that was the, uh, the lead actor um, in the film, because the film has been called by a lot of names, Karate Cop, Slaughter in San, Fr- Slaughter in San Francisco, and a couple other names, but... Um, Titanic. <laughs> so yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy but yeah don wong had affiliation with bruce lee that's how i remember this movie more than anything else but yeah if you get a chance check it out that sounds awesome I would like to go with one of our aforementioned Roger Corman films that kind of uh, tried to uh, capitalize on the popularity of Star Wars. The movie I'm referring to is uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. Nice choice. Star, And it's been recently re-released, oddly enough. Um, it's kind of an all-star cast for a Roger Corman movie. you got Richard Thomas, who played John Boy Walton, who at the time was fairly well-known from the TV series. Uh, Robert Vaughn, John Saxon, who is like one of my favorite heavies in all B-movies. Any movie with John Saxon in it, uh, I, you know, from Enter the Dragon on, I will watch. Uh, George Pappard from the original A-Team. And and the, the one character that made quite an influence on me at the time, Sybil Danning, <laughs> uh, as the Valkyrie uh, Saint X-Men in some very revealing costumes. Basically, it's a ripoff of the uh, the Seven Samurai, the Magnificent Seven. Shad, uh, played by Richard Thomas, is a farm boy, a simple farm boy, who has a, uh, a unique power that he is unaware of. 
wow, where have I heard this before? And goes out to recruit different uh, mer- space mercenaries to help him defend his home planet against uh, the evil encroaching John Saxon as Sador. Yes. It's great because the special effects scenes were recycled from other Roger Corman movies. The, the main spaceship, the spaceship that Richard Thomas flies around, looks suspiciously like a pair of breasts. And so much so that it's kind of weird uh, to watch. And you're just like, that doesn't look right. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Marta Kristen from Lost in Space is in it as well. It, weirdly enough, one of the writers on this movie is John Sayles, who went on to be an Academy Award winning um, you know, director. Did a lot of great movies, including Matt Wan and uh, uh, Brother from Another Planet. Mm-hmm. A lot of great films, but he was one of the writers on this. It's been recently re-released as one of the Roger Corman classics. I guess the, the word classic has a much wider definition than what we uh, normally use but it's uh, it's incredibly uh, funny and bad in a lot of different ways the robots are, are like pretty much stolen straight from you know, R2 and, and C3PO one is one is always getting into trouble and one is always bitching about the other one getting into trouble uh, it's just it's just a really good bad movie George Pappard plays like an older version of Han Solo. John Saxon just chews up the scenery like it was made out of taffy. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it's brilliantly bad in a lot of different ways. So I definitely, you know, if you want a nice sci-fi bad movie itch, I would definitely recommend Oh yeah, I got that'll be on the stars. I got to agree with you 100%. From uh, some other things that I've heard about the film, even though there's some there's recycled footage and, and other, you know, Roger Corman tricks or whatever, it's still listed as one of the is the most expensive film produced by Roger Corman. And uh, that was according to uh, a book called uh, The Films of Roger Corman: Brilliance on a Budget. And I guess most of the budget um, went toward paying uh, George Pappard and Robert Vaughn. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's like I said, it has a real all-star cast for a Roger Corman movie. Usually, he only can afford like one or two, you know, name uh, actors at all. Yes, and this this has a you know an all-star cast. Roger Corman had hired James Cameron as a model maker for his studio, and I guess uh, the original art director had been fired, so Cameron became responsible for the special effects in the movie, or like you know production design or art direction, and that was, um, if I remember right, his first break in the film industry. Yeah, like I said, like we were saying before, Roger Corman gave a lot of people their first uh, their first shot to make movies. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in 1980 dollars, it cost two million. So it uh, definitely uh, was expensive for a Roger Corman movie back in the day. Yes, um, I think if I if I remember right, it like earned close to like 10 or 11 million uh, worldwide. So he made his money back. Like you said, everyone's uh, been profitable so far. That really makes me wish that like, I knew about the industry when I was a kid or or in my teens to be able to grab like anywhere between 300,000 to a million bucks or like 2 million bucks like Corman was able to and just make these movies on a whim because you you know like I know these films were like made in a matter of either days or weeks. There was no 30-day shoot, there was no 60-day shoot, there was no 90-day shoot. It was bang 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 done. Absolutely. He's, like I said, there were. Uh, if you read, the, if you read uh, the book about Corman, he says that at some point in the fifties, early sixties, he was making two, sometimes three movies a week. So, there, you know, the, the 
there was no room for uh, continuity or, <laughs> or you know, uh, stagecraft or any of that kind of stuff in, in a Corman movie. It was boom, we got the shot, let's go to the next one, you know, done and on to the next one. I got to take it back to once again the 80s and uh, talk to you about Flash Gordon for a minute. Ooh, Flash. Ah. <laughs> yep, savior of the universe, or he'll save every one of us, uh, hopefully. This film, went to the movie theater to see it. Now, this was the type of film that, honestly, me and you, we could see this as a B movie. But when this movie came out, when this, the way the movie was produced, the way the movie was advertised, the way the movie was promoted, this was supposed to be an A-list, an, an A-list film. Well, the production is huge. You had some really A-list actors. You had like Brian Blessed and Max von Sydow and um, uh, Topol, who at that time, you know, had just won all the, the awards for um, uh, Fiddler on the Roof. I mean, the soundtrack was by Queen. Uh, so, I mean, it was, a, it was a fairly big budget movie. I mean, now, like you said, now it's now we can look at it and say, oh, this is definitely a B movie. But at the time, it was definitely, you know, on the road to be an A-list movie. I don't think it was that successful though no and the thing is this is one of those films that and this was a name that you heard of a lot in the 80s and has somewhat made a comeback in the late in the late i mean in the in the, in the early aughts and uh this current time frame dino de laurentis right i mean he had that in the late 70s he had that giant uh king i remember his king kong remake was one of the biggest budget movies of all time at that point, mm. and uh, starring Jeff Bridges and uh, Charles Grodin and Jessica Lange, who I think was like 18 at the time. But he, he had a penchant for making these really big budget movies that were big budget B movies. Yes. I mean, if you, I mean, uh, King Kong very much. I mean, it had Rick Baker effects and it looked great, but this, the script was a, a B movie. Same with uh, Flash Gordon, your, your example here. And the whole thing about it is, is that this film is played high, real high on camp. I mean, extremely high. Well, considering the main main character really had no acting ability at all, um, the Sam Jones. I know he, he went on to do a. Um, I think he made like one more movie and disappeared. I'm not sure what it was. Yeah, and he, and but, he ended up showing up. Um, I think on that sci-fi version of Flash Gordon for a quick minute. It's really funny because. I mean, you have all these actors around him. Uh, um, Ornella Muti, who was like pretty well known in, in Italian film, and uh, um, you know, like I said, Max von Sydow, Brian Blessed, Timothy Dalton is in the film, mm-hmm. um, and the the main character, Sam Jones, has all the uh, the you know the the appeal and acting ability of a side of beef. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm sure that some of that had to do with uh, Flash Gordon's um, box office performance. Uh, Flash Gordon ended up uh, making like $27 million at the box office. I don't know how much it cost for that film to make. Yeah, it, it developed. It later became a cult film. And it's probably done pretty well on DVD or, you know, VHS DVD and, and that stuff as time has went along. And there have been studios that have been that have either started attempts to remake it and, you know, the things get stalled. But I think like the thing that always caught me about the film, even as a kid and even to today, is how the Queen's soundtrack 
is extremely um, it's it's an extremely powerful piece to the film, and actually it helps you cope through some of the parts of the movie. Absolutely, yeah. it's uh, it's a really great soundtrack. Um, from from the point in my life when I watched when I saw the original Star Wars movie on, I used to go to the movies almost every weekend, uh, whether there was something you know uh, spectacular coming out or not. And I remember them promoting this Flash Gordon movie for a year before it came out, and me being really excited to see it, and then the music came on. I'm like, oh, Queen, awesome. And then I realized that the movie was not that good. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the soundtrack was far superior. You know, and I liked, you know, Max uh, von uh, Sydow as Ming. I thought he was cool as Ming. I enjoyed what he did with the character. And I've always been a big f- fan of Melody Anderson. Like, the movie uh, on, on a whole... You know, isn't that great? Yeah, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of lines that, you know, people talk about, like Brian uh, Blessed as uh, Prince Volton, you know, flying blind on a rocket cycle, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Dive! There you I go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the poor guys in the, R- the Royal Shakespearean Company, he's known for playing Falstaff, probably, you know, the, the one actor who's known best in the 20th century for playing Falstaff in all the different uh, Shakespeare plays that Falstaff appears in. I mean, he acted next to like Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud in their prime, you know, Alec Guinness, all these guys. And here he is with fake wings strapped on his back, but, but <laughs> and, you know, wearing a, a harness, kind of looking like an overweight Hawkman. But he's DC comics. He still rep, he still represents that movie and is still proud of it. And that, that, but that's the, and that's the cool thing. You know, I, I like about Brian blessed. He doesn't hide from that film. He knows he did it and he fully accepts it and he loves it. That's what I like most. It's interesting. Interesting. Uh, what you said it was High Camp, and uh, it's written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., who's probably best known for writing a lot of the original Adam West Batman TV series. Really? So that kind of uh, that kind of makes sense that the movie would be as campy as it was. Well, considering I, the source, I did not know that. I honestly didn't know that at all. Definitely explains the camp. <laughs> and you know, yeah, some of the special effects are cheesy, but it was just that was the technology that we had at that time. And so I know like a lot of people have difficulty watching like films that were made like, you know, pre, you know, 1995 because they're so used to CGI. But we come from a generation where we didn't we couldn't rely on CGI. You know, it was either you either innovate or you use this model here. And Lucasfilm and I and ILM, they always did innov- they always innovated. But other studios, if they if they didn't have ILM, they had to innovate on their own. So you know, we were used to seeing a lot of models. We were used to seeing a lot of camera tricks, and we just accepted it because that was as far as their imagination with the technology and the physic the physical prowess that they had. That's the best that they could do. So I'll you know. I could accept that. You could accept that. But like a lot of people today can't accept that. I think it's coming back around, though. If you look at a director like Christopher Nolan, he, he like tries to use as little CGI as possible in his movies. If you, uh, if you like, for instance, Inception, if you go and, and watch the, uh, the special features on the DVD or the Blu-ray of Inception, a lot of those effects were done without the benefit of CGI, including a lot of the weightlessness effects, the, uh, the, the, you know, the dream sequence in the hotel, all those different things things did not rely on cgi at all so i think it's kind of coming back around i think people are realizing that you know sometimes the cgi can look a little too slick i mean look at the first spider-man movie you know i mean the cgi spider-man you know spider-man you know flying around or whatever you know it looks great you know it's a cgi thing but it had no 
basis in reality. It just looks like a cartoon slapped on a, a process shot, you know. So I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of coming back around. I think there's there's places for for both practical effects and CGI, and I think filmmakers are starting to realize that. Yeah, you know? and you got to balance it out. You you really do. It's because another thing I noticed, and this was really prevalent once uh, HD TVs came out. If you had a regular, you know, if you had regular like a regular DVD, not like a HD DVD or a Blu-ray DVD. Wow, HD DVDs. Talk about technology that went away fast. Uh, <laughs> um, but if you have like a regular DVD and you threw it in a high def uh, DVD player or a Blu-ray player, and you watch it on your HD TV, you could tell the separation from in a lot of films, depending on how they were mastered, you could see the separation of the CGI from the actual film itself. Whereas when you're at a movie theater, it blends in together. And so and so you see kind of, kind of see, I don't want to call it a weakness, but you just can just tell. Babylon five calls and says hi. Oh, oh. <laughs> Woo. Boy, that's Talk about some evidence CGI. <laughs> yeah, yo, I, I would give the last Starfighter props over Babylon Five special effects. Yeah, like I said, I think it's coming back around because we're really seeing uh, like some of the newer filmmakers, you know, using more practical effects, trying to use CGI sparingly and in different ways too. So, I think that's cool. In 1980, there was a little movie that came out called The Road Warrior, which was very, very popular, and everybody loved, including myself. I still think it's one of the, my top ten best action movies of all time. Unfortunately, it spawned a whole spate of after-the-nuclear-war movies that you know looked a lot like The Road Warrior tried to duplicate its success. And the movie I'm going to talk about now is called Warrior of the Lost World. Wait a minute. Is that the, the movie with the dude on the, on the talking motorcycle? Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm back. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you're you're absolutely correct. I'm I'm not meaning to to pick on Persis Kambata and motorcycles, but this also has talking. It just has doesn't have flying motorcycles. It has talking motorcycles. So there's a distinction there. But Persis Kambata is also in this film, uh, along with Donald Pleasance. Uh, as Prosser, he plays the main, you know, the main heavy. Fred Williamson is in the, is in the film, and the main guy who has all the uh, the you know starring man uh, uh, charisma of a wet paper towel is Robert Ginty, who's probably best known as uh, the, being in the Paper Chase yes. uh, television show. And he tries, and the whole movie he, he's mumbling, uh, like you're saying uh, before about having marbles in your mouth. It sounded like he had a whole mouthful of you know marbles or whoppers or something as he spoke, and and mumbled on top of it. Basically, and I, I will read the uh, the little uh, uh, summary here: a nomad mercenary on a high tech motorcycle helps bring about the downfall of an evil Orwellian government, the Omega. That um, synopsis is better written than the entire movie. <laughs> It's uh, he has a um, computer named Einstein built into his uh, motorcycle that has this really cutesy voice and makes wisecrack remarks. He has some. He has to uh, go into a bare knuckle brawl with uh, all these. It almost seems like random characters that they just you know. Oh, we have a we have a costume of this. Great, you're going to be this guy. You know, like they had random like. Uh, the, when he has the bare knuckle a brawl or whatever, he has to fight um, a giant lumberjack guy, three kung fu guys, a black Nazi, uh, two punk rock chicks, a, a woman who's dressed like Sheena Queen of the Jungle, but has a giant '80s hairdo. Just it just looked like random, like they went through a rummage pile. Mm. They're like, okay, you're this guy. 
<laughs> it, it's just really um, the movie's really uh, terrible. Uh, it, it, it was I originally saw it as an MST, and I liked I liked it so much. I ended up getting the DVD of the um, the movie without the MST on it, and it is just as hilarious without. It's just uh, it's called War of the Lost World, and again, it was one of those Me Too uh, type. Um, um, copies of, of uh, the Road Warrior, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, one man alone against uh, you know oppression after the nuclear war. Um, there were a whole bunch of movies like this, you know, Cherry Two Thousand and uh, uh, Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin yes. uh, that we met, you know that we mentioned earlier. Um, just like I said, when a very popular movie would come out, there would be, you know, um, for every Jaws, there was a Piranha or you know, Orca. For, <laughs> or Orca, right? Or the Deep? Uh, you know, for every for every Road Warrior, there was Warrior of the Lost World. <laughs> and uh, oh, if you're a connoisseur of bad movies like Sean and I are, we uh, I definitely recommend that one to you. Yes, uh, and I will be the first to tell you that I also first saw this actually no more than five months ago through MST3K on Hulu. That's how I saw this uh, for the first time, and. Yeah, you're right. This film is absolutely atrocious and um, by on all levels. And the one thing I like about it, and I had read this actually on um on Wikipedia. So, you know, you could take you could take it with a grain of salt because you never know what's true and what's false on Wikipedia. But supposedly the MST3K version of the film was released on DVD by Shout Factory in December 2009 as part of the Volume 16 box set. The DVD includes an interview with director David Worth, who discussed the making of the movie, which was his directorial debut. Worth previously appeared at the first ConventionCon Expo Festorama in 1994 and describes himself as a fan of the show. So that's pretty cool. At least he has a good humor about it. I mean, a lot of these directors are, are can, can be kind of uh, insulted by the fact their movie's got the MST treatment, but at least this guy has a good good perspective on it, good sense of humor about it. Oh, I agree. And something else that um that I like, I think we should note, and it's a completely different game now. As opposed to the as opposed to the eighties, because once again now you know we had a DVD market, now we have an instant viewing market. In the eighties, in the seventies and the eighties, we really relied on foreign films because or because this film is an Italian film that was brought over to the states eventually. It you know it aired in you know it aired in Italy first, then was brought here, and we had like a lot of films. We went through the spaghetti western era, the Italian Hercules films. In the was was that the sixties or the seventies when that went down? The uh, Italian Hercules films were from the sixties. Okay, thank you. Um, but we relied heavily. The United States relied heavily on import imported films coming in, and now it's the other way around. Well, plus, I mean, they were able to get the rights and redub them very cheaply. I mean, look at all the Japanese monster movies from the sixties. I mean, they were very. It was very easy for them to get the rights from them very cheaply, redub them, and then you know show them and, and make their money back very quickly and very easily. You know, Sandy Frank is one of the producers that comes to mind uh, with the Gamera films. Gamera is a giant flying turtle who's a friend of children. <laughs> if, if you're not familiar with them, I mean, duh, of course, right? Right. But uh, <laughs> but basically, Sandy Frank would get these. Japanese films, 
dub them unintelligibly in English <laughs> and then release them, you know, on an unsuspecting public. Same with the Hercules films. They had these giant budgets and they were very popular in Europe. Then they'd be redubbed here in America and, you know, and, you know, make even more money back for their, for their producers and whoever brought them over and had them translated. So, uh, the, the re- yeah, so the reason, you know, we get, we got a lot of those foreign films back in the day was they were already made and, you know, they'd already made their money back and were able to be dubbed very cheaply here in America and repurposed, you know. Yes. Real quickly, touching on the Godzilla thing, I have to mention Godzilla versus Monster Zero, just because we have uh, the. the I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie or not. Everybody in the movie speaks Japanese except for one American actor named Nick Drake. Hmm. So the entire movie is dubbed except for his lines, and I'm not sure why they did it that way. Maybe you know, for the Japanese version, it's easier just to dub his lines over. Or what have you, mm-hmm. but if you watch the movie now, it, you know you're, Godzilla is attacking the thing, and it's entirely. It sounds like it's done an entirely different sound studio, <laughs> you know, a different fidelity of his, of, of you know, of his uh, dialogue as others. So it's easy to pick on Godzilla movies, though. I'm going to take it to the 60s, and I think that this qualifies as a B-film, especially now, and this was probably not, um, or actually series of films, this probably wouldn't count as a B-film back then, but looking at it more and more compared with everything else, I think it is. It's the, um, I like to call the combo of uh, Matt Helm and uh, our man Flint. Uh, uh, to the stand again, you know, you have the, the success of James Bond, bred, you know, bred, bred uh, imitators in uh, in Flint and uh, and Jim, Matt Helm. Please preach on, brother. I know these movies. Oh, okay, excellent. Um, the one film from the Matt Helm series, if I remember right, there were three. There was, um, or actually, there were, I think there may have been four. Is like the Silencers, Murderers Row, the Ambushers, and the Wrecking Crew, and. The further they went along, the sillier the films got. And I'm talking like beyond the level of uh, Moonraker silly, silliness from uh, from uh, from Roger Moore. And that's pretty silly. Yeah, and I love that. It, th- that movie is beyond ridiculous, and I love every single second of it. It is just so bad, but it's so good. But there was a film called The Ambushers, um, which was a Matt Helm film with uh, with a. Uh, uh, Dean Martin playing Matt Helm in the lead. And basically the premise of the film, and I'm grabbing this plot summary from IMDb, says a government space saucer is hijacked mid-flight by a powerful laser beam under the control of Jose Ortega, who then proceeds to rape the female pilot, Sheila Summers. ICE, I-C-E, sends agent Matt Helm to Acapulco with Sheila to recover the saucer under the guise of Matt taking fashion photographs of beautiful models. If that doesn't scream Austin Powers, I don't know what does. Yeah, baby. <laughs> and Matt is temporarily, temporary, temporarily sidetracked, falling prey to the seductive charms of enemy agent uh, Fran- Francesca Maderos. And you know, this film is full of stereotypes. I'm not. Even, I'm not even going to lie to you. He flipped a. Um, you proved that with the, the character's name Jose Ortega. Yes. <laughs> he flipped. He flipped. Well, they just call him Wetback Mexican. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. He. It's, it's sad, man. It's so jacked up. He flipped this like Mexican dude over a building and said "Olay," and then you then like they zoom out. <laughs> they zoom out behind him, and there's this big lit sign that says "Olay." I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? 
Oh my god! It is so awful. And but like all these Matt Helms movies got more and more silly as they went along. And like our man Flint, I remember this like this was yesterday. The only scene I remember from our, like from those our man Flint movies was when I don't know if Flint was undercover. I don't know what was going on. He like stepped into like this like party. And, you know, it was a 60s party. It's like everybody's like, you know, dancing and stuff. To see James Coburn like wig out and like go wild on the dance floor with like a bunch of girls and shimmy and shake. I'm like, this shit ain't right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, I just like like I said, you know, a lot of the B movies came, you know, as imitators of, of very popular uh, franchises. You know, James Bond was huge in the, yeah. the 60s. And, you know, it's uh, I could just see you know, Dean Martin. You know, with a drink in his hand. Well, you know, maybe we should do something like that James Bond guy over there. <laughs> oh, and he was drinking in these movies, too. Absolutely. Well, he was Dean Martin. Of course he's drinking. Oh, but of course. I think the thing that gets me most is that, you know, like, um, you know, Matt Helm had four films. Flint had two movies, plus had a TV movie. Um, and the TV movie, he was played by a different, he's played by a different actor. But in the two, two regular films, he's played by James Coburn. So these films had legs. James Coburn, to me, does not scream out super suave, super spy either. I, I you know. know I, mean? I, I know. Like, I, you know, I, I think of James Coburn, I think of Westerns. Right, exactly. Or, uh, or you know, um, World War Two. you know, somebody really hard bitten, you know. Yes. Not, not your super suave, uh, ladies man type uh, James Bond I, I'd have to agree. I'd have to agree. And Hudson Hawk does not count. That film does not exist because um, he was in that. That movie does not exist. <laughs> Talk about your B movie that meant to be an A movie. Hi, caramba. Yeah. Yeah, we could throw that in like Bonfire of the Vanities over in, over in the what the hell list. <laughs> I'm going to bring it back a little more modern, if you don't mind. Oh, feel free. Uh, there was a movie that came out in 2007. It actually was in theaters, and uh, I got to see it on, on DVD afterwards, called Dragon Wars, colon, D-War. Oh, uh, I, I know I know this movie. I never saw oh, it. Oh, do you? Yeah, I never, oh, oh, I, 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 oh. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I'm just going to say, Sean, you would really appreciate this. It was a, uh, a Korean production, and basically they repurposed a lot of the stuff from the Korean production to make an American version. Uh, basically what happened, they cut some scenes in with Robert Forster, uh, where he's telling the story. And like the whole first half of the movie is a giant flashback of Robert Forster telling the story from the Korean version of the movie. <laughs> um, so it's it's repurposed. Um, it, uh, there are some Korean cities trying to double as L.A. in the movie, not doing very well. Oh and uh, the worst. And we were just talking about CGI. All the dragons in this movie are, are CGI and not impressive in any way. Wow. Um, just like the cheapest, you know, it's like the bargain basement generic CGI studio they must have gone to or something, you know. Hmm. It was uh, it's just not very good at all. And to, to see an actor of Robert Forrester's caliber in this movie just hurt my heart. I mean, because you think about it, how great he was to Jackie Brown, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and to see him in this, in this um, production is just really, really bad. Uh, it's about this young boy who is evidently the chosen one. Go figure. <laughs> Um, who is going to uh, be the only one who is able to uh, rise up and defeat the dragons that are trying to take over the world that you know that we see on the news every night? But um, 
that that's the whole that's the whole summary right there. I don't even need to read IB, IDB. That that is what it's about. Uh, he's a uh, you know again you know the ch- and a lot of the movie he's struggling with the fact you know am I the chosen one? What am I supposed to do? Uh, you know and just you know. A lot of uh, um, inter- internal uh, character turmoil that makes no sense at all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if if you can deal with the the bad CGI dragons and the fact that the first half of the movie is just one long uh, exp- expository sequence uh, being told to you by Robert Forster, then I would definitely recommend uh, as a bad movie, Dragon Wars: D War. Um, there is a Rift Tracks version of it. Um, but it's 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 funny enough without it. Oh, uh, it's just it's just really bad. So I can definitely recommend that as a as a B movie. I just remember seeing a, a still a still image from the film, and I saw that Craig Robinson from uh, The Office and um, Hot Tub Time Machine and Pineapple Express. I saw I saw a still image of him in, and I'm like, what in the world are you doing in this movie? You would think he'd be the comic relief, but he's actually the main character's best friend. <laughs> and not and you know what he's a funny guy he's not very funny in this movie at all oh. they probably was told him oh you can be in this movie it's a serious role you know that's probably why he went for it you know how many days of filming for how much okay <laughs> let's go you know i do need a new hot tub there, there you go there you go um because like it was released by freestyle releasing and so I'm sure they saw the take, the intake that this film made overseas, because I guess like according to Box Office Mojo, it had a production budget of 32 million. It made 64 million in um in foreign like it's foreign gross. So freestyle releasing is probably like, wow, that made a lot of money overseas, and it wasn't really heavily distributed overseas. How about if we just like change it up, bring it to the states? We can make some easy money. I wonder how much they paid for it, because it only made like 10 million in the states. So, and I'm actually shocked it made ten million in the states. I want to know who went to the theater to see this. I know it was in the theater for like a split second and then disappeared. <laughs> uh, I, I, my guess would be Redbox. Yeah, you know, you see the law. What's that? Dragons? Oh, okay. <laughs> sure, I like dragons. I mean, it, it made it made half of its domestic gross opening weekend. It made five million dollars opening weekend in the United States. I want to know who bought the tickets. <laughs> I just don't know. This is crazy. Oh, it's bad. <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of bad, but but to me, it's good. Um, I Actually, you can purchase this movie now on Amazon, and I actually gave uh, Mr. Dietz the link to purchase this movie um, a while ago. I have yet to purchase it um, at this time, but I will be purchase, purchasing it very soon. It is a, um, a film that was originally made by, I want to say, the toy company, T-O-E-I. Uh, company. It is a Japanese version of Star Wars, and it's called Message from Space. So sad that actors of Vic Morrow and Sonny Chiba's caliber are in this movie. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'd have to, uh, I have to agree. But you know what? I love the, I love this movie. Um, but there were commercials for it. They advertised it heavily in the states. And this film came out. It was released in '78, a year after Star Wars. It's seen by critics as a mockbuster of Star Wars and like you said before it's got Vic Morrow and Sonny Chiba in it and Vic Morrow plays like a a drunken uh, general that nobody pays attention to anymore that uh, decides to uh, go out and, and defend the earth that <clears throat> to defend the earth but he has a very small role he probably got paid a good amount of money to be there for like 15 minutes 
But um, the plot of the film is, is that the peaceful planet of Jalusia has been nearly wiped out by the Metal uh, Gavanas, whose leader takes orders from his old mother, played by comic actor Hideo Amato in drag, rather than the Emperor. Uh, King Kaiba sends out eight uh, Laiba holy seeds, each one one each to a chosen one to defend against the Gavanas. Each recipient, including hardened General Garuda, played by Vic Morrow, uh, Renegade, uh, Renegade uh, Gav- Gavanas Prince Hans, played by Sonny Chiba, and a bunch of other folks all have different reactions to receiving these quote-unquote holy seeds, which are basically like these little tiny, look, they look like walnuts that glow in the dark. And then in the final fight, you have like a Star Wars style space battle. You have a sword fight between Prince Hans, played by Sonny Chiba, and Emperor Roxasa, who's like the Darth Vader of the movie. And like when they're using, like they have swords, they have just regular swords. But when they, whenever the swords like contact with one another, the swords have like this like electric lightsaber discharge, which I find to be fucking hilarious. Don't forget the robots in love. Yes, yes, robots in love as well, and cheesy robots to boot. There are also like the a couple of like American kids that were kind of like the uh, with um, that were like the quote unquote drag racers in outer space. And there's like the girl, Peggy, played by a Peggy Lee Brennan, who wanted to like have adventure and do something meaningful, meaningful with her life. And like all these people combine together because they all get like the holy seeds that bring them together to save the day. But the one thing that stands out most about this movie is that I remember there being like this boat, this big like boat with the with the with the space sails sailing through space. I remember that more than anything in this film. It is bizarre. It's a pure rip on Star Wars. United Artists um, paid a million dollars for the U.S. distribution. And um, this is once again taken from Wikipedia, so just take it for what it's worth. It said, according to company personnel, it can't keep them from lining up at the box office. It's a Jap Star Wars. It'll clean up. In the words of studio executive Stephen Bach, the only thing it cleaned up was the red ink well. Ouch. <laughs> yes. No, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna echo your sentiments. This movie is is horrendously bad and hilariously so. Um, some bad movies are, are painful to watch. This bad movie is 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 so comical and just weird and bizarre. It's it's actually kind of fun to watch. Um, I was I was very grateful to uh, to get a copy of it for my very own. Uh, I had not seen it since I was a kid actually, and I remember reading again. I mentioned it before Starlog magazine. You know, before the internet, that was you know your pipeline for for sci-fi information and thinking oh this is so cool Sunny Chiba alright you know Street Fighter he's gonna you know really and then watching the movie and just being like what yeah <laughs> and, and Sunny Chiba has a very small role it's pretty much almost you could say it's like a cameo in, in some sense because he's like in it like the last like 20-30 minutes I mean I like I love the sword fight I, I mean I, I love the sets like the sets are awesome. Like the the sets, the the designs, all that stuff is great. It's just that the film is just bad. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, how is that copy that you bought from Amazon? Um, how's the quality? It's great. It's very watchable. Again, I like I said when I saw it as a kid, I felt kind of cheated and and uh, robbed of my money. But watching it as a cynical adult, I found it incredibly humorous. I was I was glad to reacquaint myself with it after all these years. That's really cool. I, I hope to acquire a copy of that uh, very soon in in the near future because, like I said, it's bad, but I just love it and. And, you know, and I find it funny. We've talked about like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of B movies, a lot of bad films. And, how oh, you know, how like studios nowadays love to like remake films that have already made money. 
instead of doing that, why don't these studios challenge themselves and and like well one either create new content, which I, which I'm all for, or if you really want to challenge yourself, why don't you take a movie that either tanked at the box office or had an interesting premise but was done poorly and remake that instead? Well, that's funny because my next example of a B movie is the total opposite of that. <laughs> it's uh, taking something that was an excellent premise in another movie. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, yes. and totally destroying it and making it terrible. Uh, the movie I'm referring to is, again, it's another recent movie. Uh, came out in 2008. It's called Birdemic, oh, no. Shock and Terror. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I'll read, the, I'll read the, uh, the synopsis, but then I'll tell you what it's actually about, okay? Uh, the synopsis says, A platoon of eagles and vultures attacked the residents of a small town. Many people died. It's not known what caused the flying menace to attack. Two people managed to fight back, but will they survive the birdemic? Okay. In actuality, when you turn the movie, when you start the movie, the entire first half hour of the movie is about this guy trying to get a date with a girl, going, uh, calling her back, getting a date with her, and then going out on the date. Nothing out of the ordinary happening, nothing supernatural, no action, nothing. It's the guy meeting the girl in a coffee shop, talking to her, calling her back, and going on a date. That's the entire first half hour of the movie. Wow. Then, for no reason, it switches to a bunch of really poorly and uh, uh, done CGI birds attacking people. Oh, jeez. And then it comes back to the couple after about 20 minutes of that trying to escape the birdemic. It's so funny, though, because the, the CGI is so bad. You can tell they only did like one or two birds and then just copied them. Mm-hmm. So there'll be like 12 birds, but they'll be in formation, and they'll be the same two models of birds. Uh, that's <laughs> awful. It, it's hilarious, though. It's just really – and and the the actors, it's really – it's a weird mix. Like some of them are trying to take it seriously, and some of them aren't. Mm. So it's like a weird grab bag of, you know, all right, is this person really – you know, this over the top, or are they trying to play to the fact that this movie's called Birdemic and cost about a buck two fifty to make? Um, it, it's really, again, there's a, there's a Rift Tracks version of this as well, but it's just incredibly bad. Uh, it's by James Wynn, and it is an American movie, but it's a very low-budget American movie. Um, and just, I mean, if you want... My, my advice to you, pull up a clip on IMDb. Any of the any of the clips they have here on IMDb, and you'll get an idea of what I'm talking about. It's just really, I mean, Sean, if you and I were to let, you know go right now with our, our handheld movie cameras, yes. we could do a better job. That's pretty, you bad. know, asleep <laughs> <laughs> than these people did. That, so. that is pretty freaking bad, sir. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of really fake bad bird puppets. There's a whole sequence where a guy calls his pool boy to get his house ready for him, fill it up with booze, and uh, all this. It takes like 15 minutes for him to explain all the stuff he wants in his uh, apartment when he gets back. There are all these like really weird scenes like that that have no place in the main, what ostensibly is the main story of the birds attacking. Uh, they almost seem like they're from another movie that got thrown in to kind of pad this one out. Um, it's, it, it is super bad. And again, it's a more recent movie. Um, uh, you know, there were a lot more B-movies back 60s, 70s, and 80s, but there are still, you know, they're still making them now. Yeah. And I tell you, one company that is making a shit ton of uh, B-movies, and a lot of them, like, a premiere on the Sci-Fi Channel, 
or uh, and then we'll just go quickly to, to a DVD. It's a, a company called The Asylum, and their CGI is just just dreadful. It's it's the type of CGI where it's like they make the CGI. It doesn't seem it doesn't look fully rendered, and they just like put it on the screen. And sometimes things don't overlay properly, and sometimes things just don't look well. But they do it so cheaply. You know, it's just expected to the point to where now I even think they know they're in on the joke themselves. And um, they had a film come out in 2000 this year. They had, they had a film come out this year. It premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel back in January called Mega Python versus Gatoroid. My wife is a bigger fan of uh, Giant Shark versus Mega Octopus, but please continue. <laughs> um, Mega Python versus Gatoroid has um, 80s pop singers Debbie Gibson and Tiffany in it. And uh, what happens is, is that, long story short, uh, Debbie Gib- Gibson is an animal activist who uh, breaks into a house and steals like a bunch of pythons, like these exotic pythons and sets them free into the Everglades. But for some strange reason, because they set these pythons out into the Everglades, these uh, snakes are, for some reason, are now able to grow into super duper sizes and threaten the ecosystem because they kill like hundreds of alligators in a few days. And because of this, uh, Tiffany, who plays a park ranger, um, ha- start, decides to issue permits out to uh, local hunters to take out the pythons, but they don't know how big these pythons have gotten, and so the pythons, you know, eat the hunters. They eat uh, Tiffany's fiance, and so then you know Tiffany just wants to kill all of the um, wants to kill all the pythons, and then and and then Debbie Gibson's like, well, Debbie Gibson plays Nikki Riley, Tiffany plays Park Ranger Terry O'Hara. So Terry wants to kill all the pythons, and Nikki's like, no, you can't do that, and then, you know, and then it becomes like a bitch fest between the both of them, and then what ends up happening is is that um, Terry decides to feed um, the uh, gators in the swamp a steroid, so she like pumps like all these like chickens full ch- chickens full of steroids and throws them, you know, into the wild, and then and then the gators eat eat the steroid chicken, and then they you know get as big as the uh, as the mega pythons do. It, it's the most ridiculous movie I have ever watched in my entire life, and I couldn't stop. I really felt that I was hurting the country as a whole every minute I watched this movie. But then but then the but then the girl fight between Debbie Gibson and Tiffany happened. That made me laugh and um I felt a little bit better about myself, but then I continued to watch it and it was still awful. The best thing about the film is the ending. And I won't give it away for anybody that wants to watch it. The best part is the ending. But this film is beyond horrible, but I couldn't help to watch it. Well, thanks for not spoiling what is sure to be a very dramatic ending. <laughs> <laughs> Debbie Gibson is also in Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. She plays an oceanographer mm. and marine biologist. So, uh, geez, yeah. what a stretch! Yeah, exactly, exactly. The, the film, the film is just so so bad, and it has a cameo by Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. For no reason. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, my p- production assistant knows Mickey Dolan's his daughter. Hey. Hey, he's not doing anything this week. See if he wants to stop by for 10 minutes. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Bring him on by. But yeah, the, uh, the Asylum is known for very cheap films, and they're the type of company where if they know that like a certain film is about to hit the theaters in like a month or two, They'll hurry up and make like their own version of it, and it will sh- uh, premiere on Sci-Fi like either the week of or the week before. Like when um, Battle 
Los Angeles came out in the movie theaters. The Asylum, if I remember right, made their own version called The Battle of Los Angeles. They came out like a week before. Totally different. It has a preposition in there. <laughs> exactly. And like when Thor was about to come out, like the Marvel Films version of Thor, they had their own version of Thor. With Richard Grieco. Yes. And it yes, also, I saw that. Uh, how bad was it? Oh, it was so bad. It was basically Richard Grieco yelling at, you know, up at the sky at Odin for about an hour. <laughs> Richard Grieco, of course, from... Uh, I can't remember the name of the show he was on on Fox back in the day. Oh, uh, shoot. It wasn't Wise Guy. Uh, no, Wise Guy was good. Yeah, Wise Guy was real good. Uh, I can't remember life. Remember for the life of me because it wasn't in a spinoff with 21 Jump Street. I think it was. I can't remember the title of it, though. For the life of me. That's going to mess with me. I, I got to look. I got to look. I got to find out. I know he was in a movie called If Looks Could Kill because it's on like Encore every five minutes. Oh, but, so. of, but of course. Not Marker. Not Booker. That's what I it was. That's it. It, I was that's it. it was Booker because he played Dennis Booker in Jump Street and then it spun off into uh, into his own show. Wow. Of course. Mm-mm. <laughs> I should be confused with TJ Hooker. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a classic. <laughs> There has been a uh, production company since the 80s called Full Moon Studios who have made some really great B-movies over the years. They made uh, the original Reanimator, which was, you know, great. I mean, pretty much considered a really, you know, good B-horror film. Uh, they made a movie called Dr. Mordred, which was like a ripoff of uh, Marvel Comics' Dr. Strange. Uh, but the mastermind behind him, the producer, is named Charles Band. And he's been making B-movies since the 80s. A lot of them have gone direct-to-video now that there's that market or direct-to-DVD. Um, my sous chef actually turned me on to this movie that I'm about to talk about now. It is called The Ginger Dead Man. Really? Yes. Allow me, allow me to enlighten you, my friends. An evil yet adorable gingerbread man comes to life with the soul of a convicted killer. This real-life cookie monster wreaks havoc on the girl who sent the killer to the electric chair. Now, that alone would get me to watch it. But then when you realize that the ginger dead man is being played by an actor by the name of Mr. Gary Busey. Oh, no. That just adds a whole other layer of crazy and wonderful to it. (laughs) And it's exactly what you'd think. It's a giant gingerbread man with a knife. (laughs) With like kind of a, a warped evil face coming at you. So, you know, not, you know, I don't know how um, threatened I would really feel by a giant pastry uh, trying to destroy me. But uh, this movie is, just, is it's hilarious. And like I said, Busey, of course, in his you know, scenery-chewing, overacting best um, <laughs> as a giant, you know, seven-foot-tall gingerbread man with a knife trying to kill everyone. It, it was uh, directed by Charles Band. I would tell you who else is in the movie, but nobody else you've ever heard of is in this movie. Uh, <laughs> it came out in uh, the tagline is "Evil never tasted so good." It, it came out in two thousand five. It's available on DVD, and uh, it is it is really really bad. Um, but uh, seeing Gary Busey as a giant gingerbread man intent on destroying everyone uh, was was worth the price of admission for me anyway. I'm going to take you to the 70s. I'm taking you to 1975, and I'm going to uh, basically tell you about the first superhero movie ever made in China. 
Um, it was also the uh, first uh, movie promotion in Hong Kong using a hot air balloon. I have no idea what that means, but it's in my notes. And um, it's the first Shaw, Pro- Shaw Brothers production using a storyboard. The film is called The Super Inframan, and um, it's translated uh, basically from uh, literally as Chinese Superman. And if you see one of the original promotional posters for The Super Inframan, you see this like Ultraman-like character who's the Super Inframan, and you see all the things that are happening in the movie. And if you look up, you kind of see like a version of the Superman S in the poster. I'm like, wow, you wouldn't be able to get away with that nowadays. But um, the film was directed by Hua Shan, and... Um, it stars uh, Danny Lee as the superhero, Super Inframan, and something, a term that I just heard of today, which is actually perfect during this period of time, Bruceploitation. And I guess that was anybody who, like, you know, played on the name Bruce Lee or looked like a clone of Bruce Lee. Um, it also starred Bruce, uh, Bruceploitation star Bruce Lee in a supporting role. Basically, um, the premise of the film is this. The demon princess Elzebub plots to conquer the earth. She destroys a few major cities in Hong Kong to prove her power to a terror-stricken humanity. Returning to her lair in inner, in inner earth, she awakens her army of skeleton ghosts and her various ice monsters to wreak havoc. But there is hope. The high-tech science headquarters, run by Professor Liu uh, Ying Dei, in the view of a current crisis, has long at last completed and is p- and prepared to use the BDX project. In the HQ secret laboratory, he transforms Lei Ma, a high-ranking SH officer, into the bionic kung fu superhero, the Inframan. Able to perform impossible feats as well as being equipped with death-dealing weapons, the solar-powered red and silver armored Inframan is is mankind's only hope against Elzebub and her army of devils. I cannot even begin to tell you how ridiculous this film is. It is beyond ridiculous, and I love every single minute of it. This movie, everything gets blown up. Everything. Even the water gets blown up in this movie. And I don't understand how it happens. Things explode for no reason. <laughs> Absolutely no reason. It's it's like this just new version of Ultraman, but it's for the cinema. You've got these like bad guys that like have like these it looks like a like a black biker outfit, but like with the skeleton painted on it and these crazy helmets. Um, Inframan has such like a Ultraman vibe. It is ridiculous. I, I can't, I can't honestly, I cannot explain this film. You have to watch it for yourself. If you like Ultraman or Ultra Seven or Mirror Man, you will love the Super Inframan. That sounds incredible. It, it, it is. It's, it's incredibly bad. But you you have to see it's, it's it's essentially their Chinese Superman, which and he does not look he does not look like Superman at all, uh, listeners. I just want to make sure that you understand that. Um, but like they have like these monsters, like a fire dragon, a spider monster, a plant monster, a mutant drill, a long haired monster, uh, iron armor mo- monsters, skeleton ghosts who are just like the henchmen, in freaking sane. Love every minute of this film, and it is awful. Let me let me once again throw out the disclaimer that it is awful. So if you watch this movie and then email me and say, "Man, this movie sucked," I told you it was awful. But just I love it. It's that stuff that I would stay up till like two or three in the morning as a kid to watch on the late, 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 late show, and just just like love every single minute of it. That sounds incredible. I'm really gonna have to seek that out. That that sounds like it'd be right up my alley. Yeah, I got a copy of it still. 
and it's still on Amazon. It is still available in Amazon, so you can get it new for like 13 bucks. You get it used for $5. So, um, and shoot, it might be streaming right now for all we know. Uh, so, yeah, get a chance. Take a look at it. Sweet. I, uh, I think, I mean, you and I could sit here all night probably and go back and forth. I know uh, Tourist Trap with Chuck Connors, which was a really great <laughs> little B-movie horror movie. Uh, Motel Hell, which had like a mutated half pig, half redneck running around with a chainsaw. I mean, that could, you know, we could rattle these off all night. But I think since we've really concentrated on a lot of sci-fi and horror, I think I'm going to go outside that genre and go with a, a teen comedy B-movie from 1983 that is a personal favorite of mine. And it's not a very good movie at all, but I really enjoy it a lot. It's called Get Crazy. Hmm. Um, it's, about a, it's about a theater very much... Uh, patterned after the Fillmore in San Francisco. Uh, real estate developers want to tear it down. Real estate developers uh, headed by Ed Begley Jr., <laughs> uh, Bobby Sherman, and Fabian, ah. uh, who all wear matching shiny uh, Adidas jumpsuits and use Banaka Blast through the whole movie. <laughs> uh, they want to destroy the theater and, of course, build their giant megalithic corporate headquarters there. So uh, to save the theater, they decide to have one big New Year's Eve concert, and they invite all these different uh, performers to uh, to play just so I can raise money to save the theater. Uh, Daniel Stern plays the stage manager. Uh, he's very young in this. I think he's probably like 20 or 21. Malcolm McDowell does a really great star turn doing an imitation of Mick Jagger. Uh, his character is named Reggie Wanker. Hmm. And uh, I think one of the reasons this movie uh, didn't you know, get a lot of play is because it came out in the 80s, but there are a lot of uh, drug references in it uh, as jokes, mostly. Mm-hmm. There's one part where Reggie Wanker and uh, Britt Eklund, his girlfriend, are trying to snort cocaine, and the uh, the, the drummer decides to um, fly the plane. So of course they're all covered in in coke and stuff. But um, the uh, uh, leaving from fear is in it. He does a hardcore version of Hoochie Coochie Man. Uh, Lou Reed is in it, uh, playing a version of Bob, like a parody of Bob Dylan, named Auden. Uh, who's like a recluse and is coming out of a seclusion uh, to to do the show. Um, it's just really, it, it's very much of its time. It's very much 80s teen comedy, but it's kind of a B-movie version of that, you know. Uh, it's you know it's not like an A-movie, A-list uh, um, uh, 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 teen comedy like Porky's or, or, or Revenge of the Nerds. It's definitely, uh, you know, a lower budget, lower level than that. But there are a lot of really cool little uh, jokes in it. It's kind of funny. It's, it's kind of goofy. And and uh, I remember seeing it on uh, the, the long uh, the long gone USA night flight um, they uh, used to have where they were, you know, back uh, when MTV showed music videos, USA would have, uh, it started out as calling it night flight where they'd show like cold films uh, and, and music videos. And then it turned into USA up all night. Uh, with uh, Rhonda Shear and then later Gilbert Gottfried. But this was kind of a staple on the U.S. on late, late night on USA because they could get away with a little more risque uh, stuff. But it's, it's really kind of funny and it's, it's very much of its time. It's very much, uh, I mean, there are a lot, of, a lot of the stereotypical tropes of the 80s comedy are in there. There's the, um, the montage as they get everything ready, of course. Um, there's you know, the, the uptight guy who loosens up. Uh, Eddie Deason, who played a lot of, who played um, a geek or a nerd in most of the 80s uh, comedies of course ends up with the most beautiful girl oh, but of course. Uh, spoiler alert 
<laughs> but um, it's it's just really uh, kind of funny, and uh, it's written by Alan Arkish, who is is best known as a collaborator for Norman Lear, and he wrote a lot of televisions. This is one of the few movies he made. So um, yeah, get crazy. Uh, I'm not sure if it's av- it might be it's it's a little obscure to be available. I think, yeah. but if you do come across it, it's uh, it's definitely a good bad movie from the '80s. I just wanted to give you know a little um, uh, you know something outside of the sci-fi and horror genre because I mean, there are so many um, you know there. Oh no, I I, I agree. Uh, I agree. We've talked about a lot of them tonight. And yet, there's so many more we could have gone to. You know, Monster Agogo was a great. You know. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, the Phantom Planet. You know, I can, I could, I could do this all night. But you know, for interest of, you know, our listeners and and wearing our welcome thin, uh, <laughs> maybe we should, you know, um, wrap it up with maybe one more from you. All right. Well, that's cool. You know what? I think we should wrap up our uh, our B movie uh, talk. You know, talkathon uh, with a movie by that starred. I'm sorry, with a movie that starred the one and only Joe Don Baker. Saying starred and the phrase starred and the phrase Joe Don Baker together, <laughs> they really don't kind of go together. But but I think I think I know where you're going with this. So go ahead. Um, the film um, also spoofed also spoofed in Mystery Science Theater 3000 is called Mitchell. Uh, Joe Don Baker is brute force with a badge. Um, <laughs> this film came out in 1975, actually a week before my birthday. In 19, no, I'm, not, I'm sorry, a week before I was born, um, this film came out, so um, I was saved. <laughs> but um, Mitchell um, is basically a cop that tries to take down uh, John Saxon, the heavy. See, once again, we got to give props to John Saxon. John Saxon was the man. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, so it was up to Joe Don Baker as Mitchell to take down the heavy John Saxon and um, Martin Balsam and uh, Merlin Olson. <laughs> in this movie as well as he had like this relationship with this hooker played by Linda Evans and it's just awful he's the cop that breaks every law that breaks every law in the book you know it's a stereotypical style uh, movie cop the action sequences are just that you know wait a minute, wait a minute. I've seen this movie. I don't remember any action sequences. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like even in the car chase, they signal. Yeah. yeah. They're like they're having a car chase on the freeway. They're all like within you know respectable amount of the speed limit, and they signal as they turn off the road. Exactly. Not only that, but it was it was said best in Mystery Science Theater Theater Three Thousand. Who down who shifts downshifts an automatic during during a a high speed chase? I thought you were going to go with the Final Justice, which is another Joe Don Baker movie they featured on MST, where he plays a Texas lawman who ends up uh, having to take. Um, uh, a pretty well-known uh, Italian actor too. His name is escaping me right now. Yeah. Back to back to uh, uh, Europe, and then ends up uh, being uh, stuck in Malta. I watched that for the first time this week. The entire movie is shot in Malta, pretty much. That film is horrible. I'm the chubby blue line. <laughs> and like with Final Justice, he's wearing like this, like this just messed up outfit it's like a suit jacket but it's like brown and light brown with like the texas star badge and he's got like a matching and a matching cowboy hat yeah and like the boots and he's got like a six shooter that never runs out of bullets and he's supposedly uh um a descendant of uh, geronimo 
Yeah. In the movie, you know, his his middle name is Hieronimo, and he's like, no, no, it's pronounced Hieronimo, you know, because he look he looks so Native American. <laughs> it is so bad. It's so bad. Uh. There's a great scene at the very beginning of Final Justice where his best friend, um, the sheriff of the town, you know, that he's the deputy of, or whoever, gets shot, and they show the the um. Luciano Brasi, that's who it is, mm-hmm. um, shooting him, and it's the exact same shot. Like they use the exact same shot over like two or three times of him being shot and falling against the wall, and then shooting him, and then him being shot and falling against the wall again and again. <laughs> so much so they even made they even made a, a joke about it in the MST. That's hilarious. Yeah, and, our, and our, that part, that sketch, I do remember because like uh, Mike Nelson just kept falling and falling and fall. Oh yeah, that was classic. Uh, my favorite uh, line in that whole uh, MST though is when they they have a close up on uh, 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 Joe Don Baker's face and he looks like he's heard something, and Mike Nelson says, "I sense cheeseburgers." <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joe Don Baker, what would we do without you? And see, you know, the thing is, is that Joe Don Baker did movies like Walking Tall, the original Walking Tall, you know, and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, I'm I'm good with that. He was in Goldeneye. Yeah, yeah, and he was he was cool in Goldeneye. But, you know, I'm still wondering, I'm like, how do you go from, like, Walking Tall to Mitchell to Final Justice to GoldenEye? How does that bridge work? Well, I think, you know, he was trying to parlay his uh, fame from Walking Tall into a television series. And I think that's what Mitchell was. It seemed like it would be, you know, a pilot for, you know, your unconventional cop television series. Yeah, good point. Very good point. I, I, I could see that. Well, before we go... As a lot of as a lot of folks know, you know, the PKD Black Box, part of the HHWLOD.com podcast network. LOD is also on the HHWLOD podcast network. So we are all family here. So you know where to get our podcast, HHWLOD.com. You can get us through iTunes um, or like various R, you know RSS feed us on um, HHWLOD.com. You'll find everything you need on our podcast there. But Jim... Can you tell the people about the Gypsy Cafe and um, and all the tasty, wonderful things that are served there? Well, you can check our menu out on gypsycafe.net on the internets if you've got those. Uh, we're we're uh, a restaurant that uh, kind of has a focus on pan-European cuisines. I'm tra- I've been trained by, I've apprenticed with Italian, uh, uh, Russian, and uh, um, Greek chefs. So I take all those influences and uh, and try to, you know, convert them and interpret them in my own way uh we've been open for seven years now i think most remain to our listeners is every sunday we have a themed uh, geek brunch uh basically I, I it's my own personal iron chef i walk in sunday morning i see what's left from the weekend i put together a brand new menu every sunday and usually uh, it's based around a theme uh we just did recently a star wars brunch to honor the 34th anniversary of the first star wars movie we did a video game brunch because of e3 uh, every week is a different geek topic uh for the, for the um for the menu uh every thursday night we have traditional gypsy music with our band the gypsy strings um headed by um jerry gersovich who won a national uh, heritage award from the lincoln center uh for his uh, um gypsy music and uh every uh let's see every friday and sunday we have uh, readings by rebecca 
our uh, tarot reader, and um, you can check out our menu and what's going on. We're about to, we're in the middle of our summer menu now. We change the menu every season to, so we can go with what's freshest and what's best at that time of the year, and then get the best result, obviously. So uh, check us out, gypsycafe.net, if you're in Pittsburgh uh, for Pittsburgh Con, or if you're just around, or if you're going to be an extra in the Batman movie like I am, uh, then come on by and see us. We'd be happy to have you. And, and, I, and I said it back on episode five, and I'll say it again. The food is fantastic. If you're ever, ever in the Pittsburgh area, you got to go and, and, and go there. It's just a wonderful place. You know, nice ambiance, wonderful people. It's, it's just a, it's a great place to go, a great place to be, and a great place to eat. So please, um, if you're in the area, go check out the Gypsy Cafe. They won't do you wrong. Well, thanks, Sean. It's very kind of you to say. Hey, you're welcome, Jim. Like I tell people, I, you know, you know, I, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. But, um, but Jim, uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, you know, as always, it means a lot to me. Had a lot of fun, and um, we'll definitely have to do this again. It was absolutely my pleasure, Sean. I'm happy to be on whenever you have me, and uh, it's a, it's an honor to be on the Black Box. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Jim. And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the HHWLOD Podcast Network and is available at hhwlod.com and is also available via iTunes. And you can still go to pkdmedia.com to get our podcast, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, Agents of Cult, and Luke Foster's The Game from the Store for free. If you're on iTunes or our forum board, feel free to leave us a comment or you can email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.